0: Welcome to the Sidious Mag Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Chavez. The Sidious Mag Podcast is presented by Final Surge. No matter if you're an athlete or coach, Final Surge helps plan and attain both short and long-term training success. Their free online training log is compatible with Garmin, Strava, Polar, Stride, Koros, and a slew of other apps and devices. If you're a coach, Final Surge makes planning and analyzing workouts simple and helps streamline communication with your athletes. Some of the top coaches in the world who have been guests on this podcast use it on a daily basis. If you're an athlete out there hammering miles and tempo runs solo with no guidance or direction, Final Surge is also here to offer up some world-class training programs. Get yourself a training plan for that spring 5K, that half marathon or full marathon that's on your calendar right now. They've got plans from Ben Rosario and NAZ Elite, Drew Hunter and Christine Thorne, and the Tin Man Squad with their hammer and axe plans are up on there. Hit the classics with Greg McMillan, or Boston Marathon champion, and be Burfoot. If you're a fan of the sport and are curious how the pros are training, Kellen Taylor, Stephanie Bruce, and the rest of the NAZ Elite Squad share all of their training logs on Final Surge. Give it all a look at finalsurge.com, and if something sticks out to you, catch an episode next week for how you can get your hands on a nice discount for the Sidious Mag podcast listeners. Feel free to reach out to me if you need it sooner. Visit finalsurge.com today. Support for this episode also comes from listeners like you. Many thanks to everyone who has backed us on Patreon. A warm welcome to Ravenna Neville, Emma Jacob Schultz, and Sherry Outler for signing up within the past week. If you enjoy what we're doing across the City Smack Podcast Network, whether it's this show, Run Your Mouth, More Than Running, or if you just follow us to keep up with the sport on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, support us over at patreon.com slash citysmack so we can keep it going. On Patreon, you can choose to donate anything from a dollar a month, and we even have some people who are super generous and donate. $31 a month, which is a dollar a day, or $20 a month, or $10 a month. And it's also that we can cover hosting expenses, plan our on location coverage, hit some content trips, cover our website expenses, and much more other things like hiring a podcast producer for some of our shows. Think of $4 a month on Patreon, like buying me or my colleague Mac Fleet or Kyle Merber a cup of coffee. Anything more than that is greatly appreciated. And for those of you who are unable to commit to a monthly contribution, you can also make a one-time donation by sending any dollar amount over to Sidious Mag on Venmo. Feel free to include any message to let us know why. It could be because you're enjoying these conversations. Maybe we're keeping you company on a run or a commute. Or if you just want to shout out a friend, teammate, coach, or family member who really loves the show, consider Venmo as a virtual tip jar. Those who chipped in this past week include... Emma Simone, and Sam Snyder, who said that these podcasts are keeping him company during his Boston Marathon buildup. It's going to be here before we know it, so keep up the hard work. One last way of supporting us is by getting your hands on any Sidious Mag merch by visiting SidiousMag.com and hitting the merch tab. We've got shirts. We've got coffee mugs. We've got sweaters. Anything you want, hit it up. And last thing before we get to this interview, I'm always grateful for the listeners like you who leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews and ratings help new people discover the show and let future sponsors know what you think. Thanks again to everyone who has shared some of the most recent episodes on their Instagram stories or on Twitter. I do my best to reshare them anytime that someone tags me or Sidious Mag in them. So thank you so much for your support. My guest for this episode is Luis Grijalva. He was an Olympian for Guatemala at the Tokyo Olympics and finished 12th in the 5,000 meter final. His road to get to the games was not easy. In his final race as an NAU lumberjack, he qualified for Tokyo when he ran 13-13 and finished second at the NCAA Outdoor Championships that got him the Olympic standard. But shortly after that, he had to figure out a way to get to Tokyo because of his status as a beneficiary of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or as many people know it, DACA. It prevented him from leaving the United States without being able to get back into the United States. So he hired a lawyer, and through the support of many, many people, many of which were from the running community, and mounting media pressure, he was able to get permission from the U.S. citizenship and immigration services to leave. You'll hear his backstory going back moving to the united states as a one-year-old the opportunities that sports and his education provided him and the lasting legacy that he hopes being able to compete at the olympics was able to provide through inspiration for many many more dreamers in america i really enjoyed this conversation i really hope you do too so without further ado here is luis grijalva All right, now we welcome on Luis Grijalva to the Sidious Mag podcast. And the reason I invited you is because we're in the middle of indoor season. You've raced a couple times now, Milrose Games, New Balance Grand Prix. And then after that, now you're heading out to Spokane, Washington to race at the Lilac Grand Prix. And I was looking at the results each time, and you're, first of all, breaking national records, setting personal vests, and it just so happens that, like, the guys ahead of you are also doing the same exact thing, and you're not getting your credit and your due. So, wanted to definitely highlight how strong of an indoor season you've been having. So, Luis, welcome, welcome to the show, and I'm excited to talk to you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me out. And, yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit about myself, but uh, just tell a little bit of my story, too.
0: This indoor season, it's kind of really been taking off for you. PR is each time out. We saw you at the altitude mile as well. Uh, so how sort of before we kind of go into unpacking a bit of your, your history and your upbringing, I want to touch on, I guess, like the last couple months or so, because you were an Olympian for Guatemala. And everyone talks about sort of like that post-Olympic come down and that high, you know, you, you look forward to this one event for such a long time. And when it's over, you're kind of like picking up the pieces like, well, now what? And so how did you sort of handle that to translate into just continued success for this indoor season that we're in?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it was a little bit different from most people, I think, you know, like the whole situation, how DAGO went down and then, you know, kind of last minute qualifier at NCAs and then. Hiring my lawyer, July first, and then getting this permit thing within 25 days, and then like leaving. It was literally last minute, and then leaving, leaving on Friday to go from San Francisco all the way to Tokyo, and then getting there Saturday night, and then racing on Tuesday, and then barely making the final. And yeah, it's kind of all like last minute things, but I think for me, it's been pretty awesome. I mean, like, I think I'm I'm just so young. I'm 22 years old, and I think once you, once you get a taste of that success, you just want you want more of it. And I guess this summer at the Olympics, I, I had that taste of what it felt like to run with the best runners in the world. And I don't know, for me, I just want more of it. And it was just an awesome experience to be part of, to be able to represent my, my, myself, but also Guatemala, and then also 600,000 Dreamers who are in similar situations as me. So I just want more. And yeah, it's, it's
0: awesome. I want to start with NCAA championships. Last summer, um, because that really is what kind of opened the doors to you sharing a bit of your story, you finished 13-13, second place behind Cooper tier national record, one of the craziest races I think we've ever seen like at the college level. Now, when you cross the finish line one it's a it's a huge PR, you get an Olympic qualifier did you sort of realize kind of like the magnitude of that moment as to what it really meant? I mean, obviously you're, you're a little part of you is like, man, I wish I got the win. But then after that, like it really did for your career for sponsorships and all that stuff, it opened new doors.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that race was pretty special. I mean, like the fastest five uh, K field ever in um, NCAA history. So it's definitely something pretty special to be a part of, but uh yeah, I mean, like going into every race, you want to win it. And then I think just getting second was a little bit bittersweet. But just, uh, you know, running 13-13 and getting an Olympic center by a couple of tenths of seconds still pretty awesome. But, yeah, I guess uh, that kind of started at everything, kind of had the Olympic process from, from there. I think I think NCAA was June 12th, and then the Olympics were August 6th or 3rd. And, yeah, that's just kind of just started – it just ignited a fire for that rest of the rest of the summer of racing.
0: How long had you known before that? Just sort of like, okay, if I hit the Olympic standard, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy to get to the Olympics. When did you start to, to think about Tokyo and maybe some of the logistical challenges there?
1: Yeah, I, I was talking to the Federation of Guatemala and then they just really, wa- they really wanted me to run for them. And I really want to run for Guatemala just because, yeah, I was born there, but at a, when I was a year old, I moved to the states. But um, yeah, it just kind of, I was talking to them, and then uh, I knew this is like a possibility I could just uh, go to the Olympics based off of my rankings. I think I was in the 40s, and then uh, I think they just take, I think to take the top 45 or something like that, and I was pretty close to that. So I knew I was, there was a chance I would go to the Olympics, but I think in order for me to go to the Olympics, I needed to run 13, 13 because of. The whole situation, how DACA, you need, uh, you basically need like evidence and proof that you've been selected for the team, that you are going to the Olympics. So yeah, I think 1313 just still solidified my uh, my spot at the Olympics and solidified my, to get the permit on time to go to the Olympics. But uh, it was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, the whole, the way, the whole situation, how it went down was insane. I mean, there was like over, yeah, just the way how it went down, like so many people were supporting me and just. So many news articles and stories on like it kind of sought out local newspapers and then bigger towns, bigger cities to bigger states and then to the whole country, basically, and a little bit across the world, too.
0: So for the people who have been listening this far and are still kind of curious as to a little bit of like what exactly was the issue, I'm going to pull from the New York Times article that was written about you because you're a DACA recipient. And for those who are unfamiliar with it, that's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was introduced in 2012 by the Obama administration, protects 650,000 undocumented immigrants who were brought to the country as young children from deportation, with a few exceptions DACA recipients who leave the country are not permitted to return. Like other unauthorized immigrants, they face a decade long ban from reentry after living in the country illegally for many years. So if we go back to sort of how you got that DACA status, where, where does that take place in sort of the timeline of things?
1: Yeah. So it kind of opens up when uh, the Obama administration kind of took over and then they allowed, um, this over 600,000 dreamers to be on DACA and DACA kind of basically what it means. It, it kind of protects people like my, my situation. And basically I could do whatever an American could do. I could get a driver's license. I could, I could get a job. I get work. I could, I could do whatever an American can, except the only thing I can't can't do is I can't apply for a green card or I can't leave the country. And yeah, I mean, it sucks, but at the same time, there's cons, cons and pros to, to the situation, but it does allow me to, to stay in the country legally and it does protect me and over 600,000 dreamers, but there's some, uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems with it too, but it's kind of, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm so happy I'm on DACA and people think DACA sometimes is a bad issue, but I think for me, I'm just very lucky to be on it, but yeah, I mean, I've been living in the United States since I was a year old, so I'm 22, so I've been living here for over 21 years and I feel as American as anybody else who's been living here, you know? So yeah, I mean, just a difficult process, but hopefully in the future I could just, you know, get a green card and just be able to hop in and out of the country and be able to race in Europe or in different places. But I think the way um, kind of the reasoning why my story kind of blew up is because uh, I don't think people understood what DACA really meant or too many people didn't know, understood what it, what it, would have meant. But yeah, I think kind of my story and the. Also, the people of Guatemala supported me, but uh, just the Olympics itself was a really big deal and kind of the way it was portrayed as an Olympian runner might not be able to go to the Olympics because of this situation. So that's why it blew up. And I think nowadays, like, uh, especially this generation, they uh, they like a lot of like social justice. And I think that's why it just blew up all over social media.
0: When you moved to the United States as a one-year-old, I'm sure like there's very few sort of memories that, that you have. I'm curious because m- my parents, my mom's from Colombia, my dad is from Peru, and they've told me many times the story of why they came to the United States, the opportunity that they saw. And I'm, you might be in a similar boat. You've probably heard that story from your parents as well. How do you sort of remember that when they tell you?
1: Yeah, so basically... Uh... Guatemala, just uh, the this country itself is pretty bad, and there's not too many uh, job opportunities for my father to to have. And like my dad didn't even graduate high school. Or, I don't know, he didn't even go to high school because he was just like worked on a farm and all he knew about was just working. So he's from that generation of just like hard working and just always trying to work to make a living from there. But uh, in Guatemala, it was pretty tough for my for my parents to find uh, job opportunities. So. Uh, my parents came to the United States to have, a, I guess, a better life and have better jobs so they could provide and support my my family, which was um, my mom, me and my mom, and my dad, and my two older brothers.
0: What do you remember sort of like those early years once you kind of settled down here? Because, I, I mean, like for me, it was always just sort of like, stressing the importance of education. And so, you know, if you continue to go to school, get good grades and like that will open so many more doors and, you know, sports comes along, come along the way at some point and provide other opportunities. So what was that like for for you?
1: Yeah, I I think for me, it was, yeah. Like my parents just came to the States for, for, for us, from his, for my dad's children to have a better life. And so I think for me, it was kind of just, like, I always knew, like, all right, get good grades and then hopefully, you know, do a sport in high school. But uh, it's kind of in the back of my mind, like, for some reason, uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess just the way it's taught to, to kids. is like, you got to get good grades. You get good grades. You'll set yourself up for success in the future, which is slightly true. But yeah, I remember for me, I kind of struggled in school because when I first came to the States, uh, I was like talking Spanish to my parents and to my brothers but then when I got into like um elementary school in kindergarten first grade I, everyone started speaking English and it was just at first it's kind of hard to kind of get along with other people just because of, of the language barrier but I guess the longer I've been living in the United States the better my English is and my Spanish is now so that's kind of funny <laughs> yeah
0: you know, it's it is funny because like a, a lot of people don't even realize this about me and I don't think I've ever really like publicly said it like on a podcast or anything but I went into Third grade. No, no, not third grade. Uh, I was three years old, I think, when I went into like pre-K. And I, like you, only spoke Spanish at home. And it was sort of just like you enter that classroom and everyone's speaking English. And I, I didn't know English at all. And I just sort of like learned along the way. And somehow now it's my English is, you know, 100 times stronger than than my Spanish. But it's cool to hear other people have had that experience as well
1: yeah i mean like i know some people just like they grew up speaking spanish and now they they forgot how to speak it so
0: oh yeah, my so... accent is bad <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i have a i guess like an american accent yep. <laughs> like when i speak spanish now so that's kind of embarrassing because i'm from Guatemala. but oh well
0: <laughs> i noticed that too i think at milrose games right there's um spanish media i think that comes up to to you after these races is and so like one of the questions that I saw I got submitted on Instagram was how do you sort of try and stay in tap and, and, and tied to those, those Guatemal, Guatemalan roots that you have?
1: Yeah. For, for me, for myself, like, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of a Spanish reporting for runners in the running world too. So, uh, yeah, they ask me questions. So like a lot of questions to say I can speak in English or Spanish, but preferably I write speak speaking Spanish, Spanish. So people can understand me, but yeah, sometimes it's difficult because sometimes uh, when they ask you questions like, how'd you feel in the race or when'd you make your move? It's, for me, it's pretty hard to kind of say what I want to say if I was going to say English, because I feel like for Spanish, it takes me a while to kind of really get going, really just think about specific words I'm about to say to kind of describe how I felt in the moment, just because some of the questions that they ask you kind of throws me off. I'm like, oh, what is that Spanish word? And yeah, I just try to keep it basic, but at the same time, like, I want to tell the, the viewers who speak Spanish, like, oh, this, this is how I felt during the point of this race. And yeah, it got hard here and there, but sometimes it just, it gets hard to say that. But I mean, that's what I need to work on my Spanish. I mean, uh, this week at New Balance Grand Prix, my roommate was from Spain and his name was Daniel. And yeah, basically I got to hang out with the whole entire Spanish team for the, for the past few days I was there. I mean after the race or we got dinner in Manhattan and then we had dinner the night before so yeah so hopefully my Spanish got a little bit better from uh, talking in Spanish for like a couple of days
0: mm-hmm. yeah sometimes you can't help it like you have to resort <laughs> to the Spanglish and like you sneak in like one one or two words in English and you're in your answer
1: <laughs> yeah but I mean it's hard but yeah it has its cons, cons and pros to it too so I better get better at spanish so yeah <laughs> i won't have a problem like this in the future
0: you mentioned sort of taking me through sort of a little bit of those early years. when did running enter the picture
1: yeah so i kind of started uh my freshman year of high school um in eighth grade i i kind of middle school i thought i was really fast i mean i think eighth grade i i ran under six minutes i think i ran 559 for the for the mile run in PE, and i thought it was super fast and then like i got into high school and then just to come to find out that 559 is that fast as a freshman or as an eighth grader. But, um, yeah, so I kind of started my freshman year of high school, you know, the, the cross country. I remember just doing these JV races where it's like two mile cross country races running like 13 minute, two miles and 12 minute, two miles. And I remember it, like the first couple months of running, like everything felt super hard, like easy runs felt hard. Just everything in general felt like it was like all out, but, um, yeah, I just kind of like knew a new when I was younger, like, I just, I liked running, I liked running, in elementary school, you know, like, especially when I was growing up in, like, my middle school years, and, like, elementary school years, like, I remember just being outside, we used to live in these apartment complexes. I remember being outside, like, like, almost every day, all day, like, until, like, 11 o'clock at night, just playing, playing ball, playing whatever, and outside, but, yeah, I know, I just like, like, like running, I mean, the whole experience about it is, like, you only need a pair of running shoes and shorts, and that's all you need. You don't need specific or special equipment or kind of lessons to how to teach you how to run. In some ways, you do, but not, not really. But, yeah, so I started my freshman year of high school, and, yeah, kind of got good by by my junior and senior year, where I think my senior year, I ended up running uh, 402 in the mile, but yeah, and then 846 for two miles. So it was kind of progression, like, every year I got faster and faster than I got a scholarship to NAU.
0: What, what eventually put you, I guess you timed it perfectly in terms of just like that NAU recruiting came at the same time that they were on the rise and becoming the, the greatest cross-country school of all time, basically. Uh, what drew you and eventually made you put pen to paper on, on that letter to go there?
1: Yeah, so for me, it was a little bit different because uh, for some reason, my year, my uh, senior, or the class of 2017, for some reason, there was like, like, 12 guys better than me, like, they're all, like, trying to break four, and, like, they're all really fast, so I feel like for most universities, I was kind of getting, uh, underlooked, because there's all these other people that were getting more attention from, from me, and, yeah, so I kind of got lucky with, uh, Coach, with Coach Smith, uh, yeah, I started talking to them the fall of my senior year, and, yeah, I I think, I think I reached, I actually reached out to them, because I always heard of NEU as being, like, a high altitude, and it's a really, beautiful place to run and the running out here is just so different from anywhere else. And yeah, I remember emailing coach Cornfield, who's the assistant coach now. I think he was a GA at the time. And then he gave me a coach Smith's contact. And then from there, yeah, we started talking on the phone and then I heard coach miss voice. I was like, well, he sounded like it's insane. Like his voice is incredible. But, <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was a mind blow. Like the, like sometimes like when you put a voice to, to a face and when I first saw Coach, I was like, "Wait, wait a minute, that doesn't fit," you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's but so funny. Yeah, um, yeah. So I started talking to him, and then uh, me and Coach got really close through the phone, and then eventually came for a home visit. And then I kind of knew after he came from the home visit, I really wanted to go there. He just had a lot of good things to say about N.E.U. Flagstaff, but more so about like kind of his character and how what he would do for me if I went to N.E.U. And I think that really meant a lot to me at the time, like, especially, yeah, I, I was 17 years old. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. I mean, I mean yeah, it was, it was cool. I think uh, I owe him a lot, a lot of respect and owe him a lot, but um, yeah, went on a recruiting visit to NEU and then just fell in love with like the environment of Flagstaff and all the runners, everyone trying to be good. And kind of the funny thing is though, when I, when I came on my visit, um, yeah, they just won their national title, but none of those guys were, at the time were like really like any star recruits there was just kind of the blue collar guys just working hard and getting after like i knew no one on the team who was really that that well known and i thought that was pretty special like that's cool i mean yeah usually typically like an ncaa division one championship team gets like all these star recruits but 2016 they were the first the first team to do it without like that many known people i think but Yeah. I mean, just the environment the coaching staff was, was awesome.
0: How did you sort of find your place on that team? Like those first couple of years, it's interesting to, to watch someone like Nico Young, who is now like a star phenom in, at the college level, just, you know, star high schooler goes there, fits right in and is like immediately like their number one, number two guy. And so for you knowing that you had to be the one to reach out and eventually get recruited, and, you know, once you get there, how did you navigate where you belonged on that team?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, at the time, like for some reason it was like, I don't know when I first came to, I guess I was a freshman. I was 18 years old when I first came to the team, but like everyone just seems so old. <laughs> like I guess Matt Baxter was on the team. And <laughs> by the time when he was on the team, he was probably like 28 years old. And I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah it's a BYU thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah everyone was a little bit older but no I got along really well I mean like it was definitely a different environment coming from I guess just the the kind of the high school I kind of grew up from I mean it was just my high school was really diverse and just there was so many diverse people with different e- ethnics and different cultures so I think coming to NEU was a in a way kind of culture shock because I grew up in northern California and. Northern California is really diverse, but coming to Flagstaff to university was just kind of a different change of, of, of things. Like, yeah, I mean, to, kind of to be blunt, like everyone was white on the team. <laughs> and I think uh, I think the only other minority was uh, Peter Lamong at the time. And yeah, I mean, at first I felt kind of odd, but then as weeks went on, I felt kind of more comfortable. And yeah, I think it was just different coming from how diverse my high school was in the city I grew up in in Fairfield, California, to come into Flagstaff, NEU it was just completely different. I mean, it's a mountain town, you know? It's just a a different type of uh, vibe or culture out Mm -hmm. out here. And so just so different from uh, uh, Fairfield, California. But, yeah, I came into the team, and the guys took me in really well. Like, they just reached out to me if I ever needed anything and just were always there and always wanted to just hang out. I mean, that's the cool thing about being on the team, uh, at a college team, like everyone just wanted to hang out and just be like right next to each other and just be yeah be really close Mm -hmm. but um yeah i remember those first couple months actually those first two years of college i just really struggled a lot with uh altitude and just being consistent and workouts and and everything and i remember it took me a long while it took me a really long time to adapt and to start really feeling good
0: It's interesting that you kind of like mentioned a little bit of like the the diversity on the team, just Flagstaff as well. Uh, So I kind of want to go back to that home visit that, you know, coach Smith took, like when, he's got to kind of now, he's pitching you on like, yeah, the education, the team, you know, the potential to to become, you know, the best runner that you can be. That's great and all. But then, you know, when he talks to the parents, now you got to sell Flagstaff as a place and and the culture of, of the school and the team. So how did your parents sort of take to that? I re, I even remember in 2017, I went on like a I, it was like ten day trip to, to Flagstaff, and when I told my parents I was I was going there, they're just like, "What? I never even heard of it. Like, uh, what's there? What's there to do? You got to be careful." And so, how did how did your parents handle it? Um,
1: pretty well, honestly. Like, for them, they don't really know too much at the time. They didn't know too much about like running, and so all they knew is like, "Oh, at least get a scholarship and go to university." So it's uh, like they were just really happy I was going to get a scholarship to go to college because. I think for me, I if I wanted to go to university, I needed, I couldn't afford it. And so when I got a scholarship to NAU, they were just like just overwhelmed and just super happy because like there was, like oh no way they always got a scholarship. But uh they, yeah they knew it was in Arizona. They didn't I don't I didn't they don't I don't think they knew that it was like in Flagstaff like a high altitude. I think they thought like their first impressions were oh like Arizona is really hot in the heat, yeah. you know. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, they were just super supportive, whatever decision I made. And it was my decision at the end of the day, and they were just super happy. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I knew kind of coming into the recruiting process, I wanted to stay out in the West Coast. And just, yeah, it's just so different from the East Coast or Midwest or South. So I knew the West is where I I belong.
0: So at uh, NAU – you start to get a taste of the team success and you're there for that period where you guys do become, you know, the champions. And, and so you've got plenty of moments to really try and pick from as to your favorite, but to sum up your time at NAU, what, what are like the top two moments that really stick out to you?
1: Yeah. Oh, well, top two. That's kind of, that's really hard. Cause I don't know. I feel like just winning the NCAA Team title as as a team can can't be anything else. Like I remember, like my freshman year winning it in twenty 2017, and twenty seventeen. Then we won it again in twenty eighteen, and then we lost in twenty nineteen. But then we did it again in twenty twenty, and those are kind of the main highlights when I think of like any and Kind of my like contribute to any Is just the the cross country team aspect of it. Because I mean, it is you can't get greedy and you get kind of flashy. Like oh yeah, when I ran thirteen thirteen, that was the probably the best moment any year but it's definitely like i don't know i think you have to be like a part of a team to like really understand like what it means to win an ncaa title as a, in cross country especially doing it back-to-back is just something pretty special and just like yeah it's just so unique and it's just so different from like any other experience that i get individually from anything else from outside of running and i mean it's just so different like i don't know that's like one of the best feelings in the world when you win with like six other guys and then your coach is just, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think the team titles can be beat. Like, especially in 20, they're all different though. In 2017, it's a different feel from 2018 and 2020, which is completely different from those two seasons. But no, it's just awesome. I don't know. Like, especially that's when the emotions start coming out from everybody else. Like that's the one time a year or a couple of years where you, you see me cry and you see other people cry and, it's just pretty pretty special because um so many guys are so vulnerable with each other and then just they start bawling their eyes out like 25-year-old grown man, <laughs> like Matt Baxter starts crying and like that. But yeah, those are definitely the moments that that I I think of I guess top three moments of just those team titles.
0: Mm-hmm. Is the most emotional the last? cross-country race because like again like yes you could you know go on to sign a professional deal and join like a team but it like the team competition winning like club cross-country or or usatf cross-country isn't the same as what you get at the ncaa college level when you guys are that close for that many years and you you see each other every single day uh so what how would you kind of like describe those emotions after the last cross country race in a u- uniform
1: yeah i mean it's just so different like uh i think whoever the college kids are listening to this it's like like no matter what no matter what team you join after you're done running from college or <laughs> whatever group you join like i don't think you could replicate that ever ever again you know Cause once you become a professional runner, it's more about yourself. You know, there isn't no, there is, there's no team, you know? And yeah, like at the end of the day you run and then you do the track or you go to the marathon and yeah, there's nothing like cross country, like cross country nationals in college is so different. And I think for me, I think that's probably one of the most emotional races I had at NEU because I mean, personally, yeah, it was just kind of, I was I, I was going through a lot and just still trying to figure out like what I was going to do after uh, after my senior year across, uh, after my senior year and it kind of made it clear that I was going to do four years rather than five years at NYU and when we won in 2020 it just it I think it was a lot of expectations for myself because um, like that fall I had a great season where I ran 7:42 in the 3K and then 13:16 at the Sound Running Meet for the 5,000 meters. And yeah, I think I had a lot of expectations overwhelmed for myself. Like I'm expected to, to win, to win the cross country nationals because of what I did in the fall and how I, how I performed. But I don't know. I think for myself it was more kind of proving to myself, like I could compete and do really well at the NCAA meet because uh, in the years past, I struggled a lot learning how to perform my best when it matters the most at NCAA cross country nationals or, track nationals and yeah i was kind of going going through demons within myself like i right, just see if, what i can do be the best i could be like it doesn't matter about winning it matters about your about your team and your brothers along the line and i don't know i just remember like after the race just i just started bawling when i hugged coach smith because he kind of understood what we went through the past like four years at neu and how much it meant to me and yeah i mean i want to say more but just yeah, there's so much behind the scenes that I, I went through at NEU and those four years, any that's one, that's why uh 2020 and or 2021, I guess, cross country nationals was, was really uh special for me.
0: When you see Coach Smith on the TV, he's got the sunglasses on, he's got the hat on, and and he's you know, he does the TV interview and is he celebrating with you guys. I mean, I it's hard to see if there's any any tears from him. Does he keep it together? Oh no. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, that's, I guess that's what the cameras don't, don't see, and uh, yeah, it's different when you think of like, oh, wonder does that person get emotional? But yeah, he gets emotional. I mean, like, that's what he loves doing. He like, he gets, he's really passionate about what he does, about like how he coaches people and how how much time and effort he puts in within the team. You know, because he wants to give his best every single day. And yeah, like, yeah, he's just he's awesome. Like, it's he's somebody that you want to surround yourself and like he's a good coach and you know, all like whatever he could coach people to fast times I don't think coach Miv has a good coach like that I think coach Smith has a good coach where like you could really relate to each other like on a whole deeper level of understanding each other and it, it becomes really personal and I think for kind of one of the reasons I wanted to stay with coach Smith is because like I know I could be good anywhere else I go but it's just hard to go from coach Smith to any other coach in the world not from a coaching standpoint but from like just the person who he is, you really want to like surround yourself and kind of like look up to him as a mentor and as a friend too.
0: Was that, I guess, to <clears throat> kind of move towards, you know, after, you know, finishing second at NCAAs that opens up the opportunity for you to turn professional, you sign with Hoka and they allowed for sort of like that flexibility for you to find your coach. and And so you luckily were in one of those situations where you're able to carry over and keep working with coach Smith. I I'm trying to think. He coaches Galen Rupp, but aside from that, his core at the time of like professionals uh, and his wife Rachel Smith now. Um, but it wasn't that sort of big. How did you broach that conversation as to like, hey, can can we keep this going?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's different from from anybody else. Like I know a lot of people approach the coach Smith like, hey, can you coach me? And a lot of times he says no because. Yeah, he's he, like his main focus is no matter what, it's always gonna be NEU. Like NEU over Galen Rupp, NEU over Rachel Snyder, or, or Rachel Smith or or Luis Grahava, but um yeah, he's just really invested and passionate about the NEU team. And I think for me and Coach Smith's relationship is a little bit different because you know, I I recruited with him in twenty sixteen when I was in high school and then went to NEU from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty one. So I think our our relationship is just a little bit deeper than most people who don't know him or just want to get coached by him. And it's kind of funny because sometimes I get some people reaching out to me. It's like, Hey, can I train with you? Or can I uh, get coached by coach Smith? And it's like, why you, why are you coming to me? you know, not, why are you putting myself in that situation? But uh, no, I think it was really mutual. Like, I think we talked about the idea, we, with it like in February, March and, I asked him, like, hey, you think that would be a possibility? And he was like, yeah, I would love to to do that. I think that would be so cool. I think we just – we're just getting started in college. Like, imagine what we could do when we have – when you're training like a pro and we have so much more time to do things more like a pro. And, yeah, it's just different. I think we just got a lot closer from my freshman year of college to my senior year of college. So, yeah, I mean, I got offered uh, different – from different groups and different companies, but – yeah, it was really hard for me, too, because I was really considering, like, all right, what do I want? Do I want to stay with Coach Smith, or do I want to go to a, a, to a new group and, you know, train have really good training partners to to run with and to push myself? But um, at the end of the day, it must sense to stay with Coach Smith, stay in Flagstaff. And I think Flagstaff is a really beautiful place to train, but also, like, the best place to train in the world, because you got all these four service roads that are here to you can run, and then you can go down to Sedona, and yeah, work out. But yeah, it was just a whole lot of things played out. But just the yeah, I think it's just it was more personal for sure.
0: Who's the the pro core? It's well, Galen's remote in Portland. Rachel and Ellie Henness are in Flagstaff, and it's you, and that's it, right?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of funny. So he's probably gonna get mad that I'm telling this, but
0: we. I'm, I'm trying to call ourselves the Mike, Mike Smith elite group. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next question. It was like, was to like, do you guys have a, a team name? It's it's cool that it's like all different brands too. Um, but it, yeah, I was going to say, you guys need a name if you're going to be like the small core.
1: Yeah, the Mike Smith elite group, you know, coming up. <laughs> but uh, no, nah, nah, I don't think he wants it to have a name or a title just because then it starts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird when it's like a title. Like, oh, this is, was, well, the funny thing about group names is like, a lot of the group names are named after people like team boss and environment. And yeah, I I don't think he just, it's not a group, you know, it's just, it's just me, Rachel and Ellie, who are just, who are really good friends who really like each other and we train with each other. And yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, Galen's in Oregon training, but um, yeah, there's no title to the group name at all, but it's just, yeah. So far it's just us, us four.
0: Yeah. So do you find that hard, I guess, like being the, the only guy in the group or do you still jump in workouts here and there with Nau you guys um
1: no honestly is that it's not that hard i don't think of it like oh, i'm the only man in the group because yeah like ellie's my girlfriend and then i'm really close to rachel and yeah we like n- not necessarily i don't train with them on easy days maybe like i warm up with them on doubles or for warm-ups for track workouts but we do think a lot of things together we do like our drills together and just hang out and just you know do our strides but other than that um yeah. I think for me, it's just a bit different because, you know, I run a lot of faster race, race paces and the easy, I run my easy runs a little bit quicker than they do. But uh, for me, it's, it's, it's different because um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard for me to train with people, but at the same time, I'm in Flagstaff, which is Yeah. That's what awesome. I was going to say. You can, <laughs> yeah. find, you can yeah.
0: easily just like, you know, float a couple of text messages and find someone who's like, Hey, can you jump in for, you know, this portion of it or whatever?
1: Yeah. I'm in Flagstaff and, the way uh, coach Smith uh the way his training structure he gives you like a lot of freedom and we just meet on workout days and like three or four times a week and then we uh yeah we meet up for drills and doubles but um yeah it's cool because I get I have a lot of freedom to kind of basically run with anybody I want to run in Flagstaff and it's been pretty neat because I'm not tied in with a specific group that I need to report here every single day you know I kind of do my own thing and I kind of get to the side, like, all right, who would I want to run with? Do I want to run with people from Under Armour or, you know, or just other people who are just in town for a couple of days? But no, it's, it's awesome. Like, I have that uh, leverage of just basically training who I want to train with anybody in Flagstaff or running with anybody I want to run and also kind of picking the location I want to run in Flagstaff too, you know? And it's not necessarily just all by myself. Like, I think I, I think the only runs I do by myself is – probably just doubles mm-hmm. every other run is just with people and or sometimes not even doubles but most of my running is like with people and then other aside from workouts some days i've it's pretty individual on my own but uh, occasionally i hop in with the and you guys i mean this fall was pretty pretty difficult because they were like trying to get in peak fitness by the end of november while i was just trying to come up <laughs> on the from the olympics but um no, it's been awesome i've been i've been linking up with them this past track season and Yeah, pretty similar workouts so it's been awesome to you know i'm only a year off the team so it still feels pretty fresh pretty Mm -hmm. new from from the guys i'm it's not like i'm one of those old guys who just (laughs) is relying on the team to do for everything but you know the guys still treat me like i'm still part of the team so that's pretty special what i get to do with them
0: Mm -hmm. so before we gloss over and put an end on like talking about the NAU team, you did get a couple really interesting questions submitted via Instagram, where one of them asked, Tyler Day once shared that you ran an angry 402 in mile in Flagstaff after NCAA cross country. Is that true? Uh, NCAA indoors. Oh, is that NCAA indoors? Yeah. So when,
1: so basically it is kind of true. Uh, so basically uh, when in 2020, when the indoor national meet was canceled, uh, yeah. So we were in Albuquerque, which is only four hours away from Flagstaff. So we drove, when we found out it was canceled, we drove uh, the night back to Flagstaff and Coach Smith was like, kind of flirting with the idea of like, Hey, maybe we could just do a time trial and just see what, what would happen. And I think for me, like 2020, that indoor season, I was really on fire. I was really, you know, just like really on on my game and just having a lot of PRs every single race and winning a couple of big races. And yeah, for me, I, The only reason I ran that 402 in the dome after the NCS was canceled because I wanted to prove myself where I was ready to perform at best on the day that it mattered the most. And, yeah, so I ran 402 in the dome. So kind of how that played out. Uh, Yeah, it was a running start. So, yeah, you take a second or two away. And, yeah, and then I had uh, Theo Quacks. He he paced me for uh, 700 meters, right? And then he took 400 meters off and then paced me the last 300, 300 meters of the 300-meter of the, of the lap track we have. So the last lap of the track. And, yeah, I ended up running 402. And it's not much of just frustration or anger. I'm not a really, like, hatred or angry person. It's just I, I needed to prove to myself that I could perform, and I could perform when, when it matters the most. I was, I was, it was more so for me than for anything else than like, uh, yeah, I'm not a big media guy. Like I, I, I kind of have to be a media guy. Cause my job kind of requires me for that. But I think at the time it's like, it was more, more so for myself. I mean, I could have posted it on Instagram or something like that to kind of make it more aware. But for me, it was just, it was more for me than anything. It wasn't for anybody else, but for me.
0: It's very Mike uh, Smith. It's You made it happen, and then no one no one knew about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it happened. And I think only like five people were there on the track. <laughs> it, it's yeah, one cause... of those
0: sort of like legends, because uh, another question that was asked sort of was, what's the craziest or best workout you've seen someone do in Flagstaff? There's actually a video on the of Mag YouTube channel from a couple of years ago where it's all these pros talking about some crazy stuff that they've witnessed and like their stories of like abdi on the a1 road and, and and just like you know long runs by somebody like on uh you know lake mary road or david torrance i think like also had like some pretty crazy workouts out there and so what i guess i'll pose the question to you what's some of the craziest stuff you've seen
1: yeah um kind of and i don't think i ever seen anything too crazy like in live but i heard a lot of rumors of like kind of the a1 loop record i can't remember who has it. i don't know if it's ryan hall or if it's big Obdi. but i always remember hearing like yeah like big Obdi average 502 for 21 miles on a forest service road that's really hilly and you have to go up a lot and then you go down a lot and yeah that's like kind of the probably the most impressive thing i heard from from the men's side but um yeah i'm trying to think of anything else like i know any you i did some pretty hard workouts but like for most of like track workouts yeah I don't, I don't think anything beats the the 21 mile loop that Ob, big obdy or Ryan, i don't even know who did it <laughs> but
0: <laughs> someone yeah, did it. yeah
1: someone did it but yeah i don't know yeah that's probably the most impressive rumor i heard i don't know if it's a rumor or if it's just yeah the legend yeah because uh, I, I also heard another one that wesley career was here and he did the same thing too so <laughs> just a lot of rumors in town but I, I think for more so of the track side it's like I think when I ran 402 up here, it it became a rumor because like, oh, there's no way. I got a lot of messages from people from Flax. did you really run 402 here? (laughs) So that's why, yeah, that's why it's kind of like a funny funny rumor because only like six people were there. So
0: So that 402 probably gave you a little bit of confidence going into this attempt when like, I guess a couple of weeks ago, it was billed as you were trying to break four again in the dome. Uh, This time around, you end up running 404. Uh, so, and I, after this, I also kind of want to pick your brain about like where you stand on conversions and like how directly it translates to people's fitness. It seems to be working because you're on a roll this indoor season, but there's always people who poke at these, (laughs) these altitude miles.
1: Yeah. Altitude is just really, it's just different for a lot of people. Like I know for me, like I still struggle a lot in altitude too. And I heard stories of David McNeil, an uh, NEU legend who would like suck every single workout, but then go down to sea level and race like a baller, you know? And for me, when I think of altitude times and altitude conversions, I always like to think it depends on the individual because, you know, typically first for 18 year olds who come to NEU first time ever here, typically a lot of them struggle, right? but then you get a lot of rare rare exceptions from some individuals like Nico, who just, for some reason, doesn't feel altitude, you know, altitude doesn't affect them. Like most freshmen would, or someone like Drew Bosley. I remember Drew Bosley came in and altitude was pretty easy with with them, but um, yeah, it just depends on the the individual because for me, uh, yeah, I ran 404 in the dome, which converts the 355 for the mile. I think I can run faster at sea level than I can run faster at altitude. I mean, I ran 335 for the 1500 meters last summer, and that's like almost our like 352 pace, whatever. But yeah, I think it just depends on the individuals because sometimes the altitude convergence are very generous to, to a lot of people. And that's why world, world athletics doesn't accept altitude times because in some ways uh, it's unfair because there's some people who are born at altitude where Altitude doesn't really affect them at all, and there's people from sea level who come up to altitude and just struggle so much like like I don't know, like Abdi Hamid ran that mile that week too, and he went all out and ran four eleven <laughs> which converts to like a four mm-hmm. or three mile, right, and then the next week after that, he runs three fifty five mile so yeah it's, it's a grain of salt because everyone's really different at altitude, and I think if, the for the race how it played out when i ran that mile at that 404 is we just went out too fast like i i think i was so yeah for the first 109 meters i think i was like 15 seconds right oh. and then for the next 300 meter split we were 42 which if you're trying to break for altitude you kind of want to be even where your pace is so you want to be 60 60 60 because it gets really hard after a k to start closing down and we went, went out in 158 which is
0: which is really hard
1: to do in five seven. And, and yeah, it was just way too fast early on. And I think I ended up running a 47 last 300, which yeah, it doesn't look pretty on paper, but it just depends on the individual for sure. Like, yeah, I, th- I think for me, altitude times shouldn't count, you know, because yeah, people who, who lived here or who train here, it's a little bit different because you're more acclimated to the altitude. And it's not like, I think altitude times should only count for people who come up to sea level or do come up from sea level to altitude to race. Yeah, that's why yeah. I think altitude times uh, should count. But then again, running at 7,000 feet is really hard. And <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> like I still struggle with altitude sometimes too. So it just takes a while for people to adjust, but some people never adjust. <laughs>
0: I've seen the photos after the race that Justin Britton took from from that uh, from that mile that you did a couple of weeks ago. So like take us through, I guess, like the feeling after it. Are you just like sucking for air? Was it lactic? Like that that that's gotta be probably one of the hardest efforts you've put in during a race. I
1: think that's probably the hardest race I've ever (laughs) done. (laughs) Uh, I think like typically after races, like I'm not the type of guy who ever like lays down on the ground after a race you know and i think i only did that one other time in my running career and the first time i did it was at george kite invitational is a cross-country race we have in buffalo park and it was my freshman year and it's a four and a half mile race and i think i averaged like 5 30 and i was dying i laid on the floor and typically i never like i'm I'm never the guy to just like lay on the floor and just like feel like exhausted or like that but yeah after that race i needed to it was definitely hard. I mean, like, I got 7:41. I raced at Millrose, and 7:37 at um, New Balance felt way easier than running a 4:04 all out. It's just a different type of feeling. And I think for people who kind of don't understand what it means to run a mile at 7,000 feet and in, in, in the dome, which the insulation of the dome is really just really crappy, it's just it hurts. I mean, after the race, I felt like my lungs exploded inside my my chest and I tasted blood, I tasted iron in my mouth, and it was really, uh, yeah, it just, it hurt, uh, it just, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely the hardest race ever, I think I raced that ever in my uh, running career.
0: Do you think, do you or Nico will give this another shot at some point, and and someone will break four in uh, at the Dome in Flagstaff?
1: yeah so i still haven't broken four in the mile yet which is i was gonna i was gonna bring that up <laughs> next
0: i'm looking at your prs it's 402 outdoors and 409 at altitude in in idaho right or something like that yeah
1: yeah yeah so last the fastest time i ran was my senior year of high school <laughs> so yeah i mean yeah i think i just never got a chance to run a sea c-level mile at my time at neu and um yeah i don't know when i'm gonna run a mile but uh, that's why I made it a big deal, because I wanted to make it a big deal. First time breaking four was going to be the first time at 7,000 feet, which I think no one's ever done. And um, maybe next year we'll give it another shot. I think I think I could have done it last summer. where It was a little bit more sharp. But I think January 20th was a little bit too early for me. And, yeah, maybe next year we'll give it a try at the Dome, because uh, it makes it harder if you run inside the Dome than running the, on the outdoor track at you.
0: So I want to go back to talking a little bit about last summer, because you've described it as as craziness as, and just like so intense as to what happened after you had to hire a lawyer and go to these meetings to try and get the permission to be able to, to leave the country. And this all sort of happened very quickly and with only, what, like two and a half weeks or something like that until the Olympics started. So can you walk us through what the, how intense that process was like?
1: Yeah. I think it was really intense for me. Um, I mean, like, yeah, so I, so my, for my last race of college, I qualified for the Olympics. And then from there, I signed with Hoka and signed with Flint Sports. And then from there, <coughs> I uh, hired my lawyer July 1st. And typically to, to get a permit to leave the country takes over six months. And we did it in 25 days. And yeah, just kind of the tricky part was it was really rushed because I needed a lot of paperwork to turn into my lawyer, like a lot of identification a, a lot of forms of like when I first came to the States, my driver's license, all these other information. So it was a lot of like back and forth between like giving like photo scanning uh certain papers and document work. But yeah, it was just a, a crazy process because yeah, I mean, I think one of the cool things about Hoka, which uh was a little bit different from other contracts that I received is that they they made a, a budget for me for um, kind of immigration stuff, and so I had a budget on the side where I wasn't coming out of pocket to hire a lawyer because, yeah, it was over about like four grand overall I think to hire a lawyer and to make sure all the paperwork's done. But yeah, I hired my lawyer Jessica, and she, basically she's an immigration lawyer, and she this is kind of her bread and butter. She knows what he's what she's doing, and like without her, I don't think I'll be able to have gone just because the way she did things was pretty unique. Because yeah. So hired her July 1st, got the permit on July twenty-fifth, I believe. And the way she was handling things is she had a lot of connections within within the local newspapers and then like the Washington Post and all these other news outlets that basically she was using the media as leverage for the USCIS office building, saying that if you don't let Luis go to the Olympics, we're gonna make the the media is gonna make the USCIS office building in Phoenix look really, really bad. And that's the type of media attention that some of these offices don't want. So that was kind of cool because, yeah, they're under a lot of pressure from the all these newspapers and all these phone calls from people. But yeah, that's one of the things the people don't understand like how hard it is to, to get the permit within time because, yeah, I guess for uh, kind of the people in kind of my circle, kind of my inner circle, they made an Instagram post about me about hey Luis needs to go to Olympics call this number call this office and then it just blew up all over social media like it was intense like like on my phone I literally had like over a, a thousand messages like on Instagram saying like hey we support you or like hey we're doing this like hey I know this guy in this office hey blah 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 blah. but it was intense dealing with kind of like the the media side of it but also just like I don't know I guess having the full support of the entire Guatemalan people and then every runner in, in the world and in, in the United States was pretty cool. But uh, from aside from the logistics of all the paperwork and lawyer stuff and new news outlets. Yeah. So I got the I, I booked a flight to leave on Friday, not knowing that I was going to get the permit. I got the permit on Monday. I left Friday morning. And then from Friday morning I got to Tokyo Saturday night. And then Saturday night, uh my first race was on Tuesday. Yeah. So it was kind of hard because i had a lot of stuff to worry about from like all these people from like the USCI office building all these media attention but it was i think i handled it pretty well for for the amount of stress i was being held at because yeah it was just difficult because also like a side note too is that um so typically when you're racing humid places you try to uh heat train and I did not, anything. I did zero of that because I didn't think I was going to the Olympics. so I was taking my shirt off for most runs in, in the summer in Flagstaff and not, wasn't ready for it. But then, yeah, I got there like two or three days before my race, and then yeah, I just felt the heat in Tokyo, and it was just really hot. Like I was struggling a lot. but That first race was really, really hard because I was getting bullied by all these guys, just kind of pushing me forward, back and forth. But they, uh, yeah, luckily enough, I qualified for the for the for the final and then from the final the final was a lot easier than the um than the prelim for sure because i think my body was kind of acclimating to the heat as i was there longer and longer and yeah it was just really in some ways it was overwhelming but in some ways i think i handled it really really good at like i didn't want to go to tokyo and have all this stuff done to not make the final i mean i feel like a lot of people were relying on me especially the people from guatemala and yeah i wanted to of proof to myself and proof to other people like yeah i belong here at the olympic stage this is why it was a big fuss in the first place and yeah i think it was awesome that i made the final for, for myself but also for the people of guatemala
0: too when was the moment that like i know those 25 days must have been so intense and like you said just kind of overwhelming with just like the heightened attention one in addition to that you have to train through it with like the question mark being whether or not you were going to uh, be able to make it to to the Olympics. On top of that, um, COVID plays a whole role into it, too, with like testing and getting all that stuff clear to even get into Japan. Was it when you got on the plane or when you like got to the Olympic Village and finally like got to your room could put your head on the pillow? Was that did you finally feel a sense of relief?
1: Yeah, definitely when I got on the plane for sure.
0: Because
1: <laughs> to go to Tokyo, you needed like uh, more documentation of like who you are and then like all this Olympic stuff, you need a credential and then like two COVID tests before your flight. And it was just, like, to, also like to get into Tokyo was a lot of paperwork, too. But also from aside from that, it was a lot of paperwork to get the, the permit on time, too. But yeah, as soon as I got on the plane, it was just like a side of relief. Like, oh, I can't believe I finally did it. Like first time ever. I was nervous, too, because it was my first time ever leaving the country and going to Tokyo since I was born in Guatemala and um yeah it was just a sign of relief like it was cool because I remember like Big Abdi was on the same flight too and I remember it's like yeah let me take a picture of you and he took a picture of me and then he sent it a couple people but yeah as soon as I got on the plane it was like a, a sigh of relief and then when I got to the Olympic Village it was even more relief because like all right I'm finally here like no one's gonna stop me at here or here or there because yeah it was just it was awesome like yeah it, it was cool because like even though it was the first time for me to ever leave the country to the United States, I still felt like I was traveling the world because yeah, I mean like everybody from the world was there at the Olympic village, you know, in this like this like two mile block (laughs) or two mile village. Like, yeah, I got to meet so many people from all over the world from different parts of the world. And like, even though it was my first time ever leaving the country, I felt like I traveled the world within the little Olympic village that we were staying in just because, the people that I met and everyone from all over the all over the world was there.
0: What was it like? I guess meeting some other Olympians from Guatemala. Yeah,
1: it was it was funny. Um, so I felt like there was more people from the federation there than there was athletes because I think there was over like eighteen athletes that qualified to the Olympics from Guatemala in different events and different sports. But uh, track and field or athletics is kind of in the second half of the Olympics. So by the time I got there, there was only uh, like two or three other athletes there. And then one of them was a badminton player who got, ended up getting fourth. who was so close to a medal in badminton. And the other one was like a swimmer who made the the butterfly final and got seventh. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. I got to meet people within like my country. And it's funny because if you look at Guatemalan people, they're, they're really short, (laughs) like the average height in Guatemala for Guatemalan women is five foot, and then for men is five three. Wow. So, yeah. So just looking at like the people where I kind of grew up from, everyone was really short, and I'm five eleven, and yeah, I feel like a giant compared to them. <laughs> but like they were they're really tiny, but they're like all just super welcoming, just super glad that I decided to run for Guatemala in the first place, and they're just all about me and make sure that I needed everything, and they were just stoked for me to be there in the first place and like it was crazy the amount of attention i was getting in guatemala because like everyone was supporting me and there was even like a song that came out about me really (laughs) (laughs) yeah someone made a song kind of like a typical like hispanic like you know uh like instruments and yeah they made us made a song about me which is kind of cool and then just the amount of praise i was getting a lot from the people guatemala was special and just yeah, I think Guatemalans take a lot of pride in their athletes and just anybody who comes out from Guatemala who makes the Olympics is just, they're all about it because I, I guess they kind of understand how, how athletics works in Guatemala It's nothing pretty special, you know, and for them to have a person kind of like me, they just were all about me and that was pretty cool. But yeah, they made songs about me, which was kind of funny. <laughs> You're
0: going to have to send me the link to it and I'll like include a clip from the song <laughs> yeah. at this, at this point of the podcast. De los Estados Unidos, país que lo ha formado.
1: Él siempre ha sobresalido, es deportista
0: destacado. es un hombre de maíz, orgullo de nuestro país. ¡Congratulations, Robert! Luis Vijalba i mean with a thousand messages that came in beforehand i'm sure uh, you didn't get a chance to read or respond to every single one what percentage of them would you think were other dreamers who got wind of your story and wanted to reach out just and and show their support for you
1: yeah definitely a lot too because i I read a couple messages and replied a couple but uh, i kept getting messages from um so a couple of dreamers, feel he like, Hey, I'm a dreamer too. Like what you're doing is so cool. And so special. Like keep doing what you're doing. Like you're making a name for dreamers. Cause there is over like a 600,000 dreamers in America. And like, when I think about my situation at the Olympics, like I imagine that out of this 600,000 dreamers, like imagine if there's someone else in the same situation, if not like it's higher than the Olympics or even better than the Olympics, like something even better than that. Like imagine someone, did not get the opportunity to to go to their event or to do this or to do that and that's why kind of my whole movement when i started was like it was really big for for all the dreamers in in the u.s because it was kind of like an inspiration i think and to say if i could do it they could do it because it is really difficult to be in the situation that we we are we are in because there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of obstacles we have to go through and it's really hard leave the country in the first place and like imagine if you're somebody who wants to travel the world and see the world and you might not ever have the opportunity to do that because if you leave you might not get back in so I think I kind of started something and kind of got a lot more recognition for what DACA is and for what dreamers are because not too many of my friends ever knew I was on DACA because for me I was pretty close to the vest with that type of stuff but when when they heard the story I was like oh I never knew that about you because yeah, yeah. It's not, it wasn't any sign of embarrassment or anything, but I just like keeping some personal stuff to myself. But when that story came out, like, yeah, it was awesome. But all the messages I received was, and this, like, it was crazy. Like I still have messages like over like a hundred plus, like on Instagram that I can never go through because there's so many like messages, but yeah, I'm just happy that I got to be a voice or, or like a role model in a way to other dreamers like myself.
0: What did your parents say? You finished 12th in the Olympics. Yeah, there's just, they're just so
1: proud, I guess, as a parent, you could be like just so proud. Like, and, and yeah, I think in some ways they can't, they couldn't believe what I was doing. And yeah, to go to the Olympics is just like to go to the Olympics itself and to make an Olympic final, is just like really hard. I mean, there's only like 11,000 athletes that go to the Olympics from the world, and it's every four years. And yeah, I think it was just so special because yeah like like when you're in the olympic village and then you see all the events play out and the olympic games and stuff it's it's incredible because you see how how close people come together like i know there's a couple people who like i remember the argentina women were there and they won uh i think it was a hockey team or i'm not sure something like something or rollerblading i don't know but there was like 20 of them and then they, they they got second place and won a silver medal and they just all like started singing in the cafeteria, like sitting on top of tables and just started singing like songs from Argentina. And yeah, I think just people just take a lot of pride and just so proud because it's cool because the Olympics like brings a lot of people together and just especially special because people come together to, to celebrate success for the athletes. And I think sometimes athletes don't get too much, too much recognition, especially I guess runners in, in some ways, but yeah, my parents were just, Yeah there's a maze and just, I uh, couldn't believe it, I guess.
0: So now looking ahead, this indoor season, you're, you're shutting it down after the Lilac Grand Prix most likely, but it does sort of like world indoor championships out in Serbia. I'm guessing you can't go to that.
1: Yeah. For myself, I, uh, I don't think it's worth it to go for me because um, you know, like the Olympics were like a, I was there for like 10 days, you know? And to, I think the World Indoor Championship is only three days. And I don't think it's worth it to go through all the hassle of getting a, another permit again and only being there for three days and then be able to see sites like that. And uh, yeah, it's not worth it for me. I think just the way, the way Coach Nov's training me right now, he's, he's more out gear. And the main goal is outdoors for worlds in Eugene. And yeah, personally, it would have been cool to go, but at the same time, like, like talking to other athletes at the new balance games, so like, yeah, I'm like, I was talking to like Jake Whiteman. He was telling me like, yeah, I'm not going to go or any boot who are, who can make the teams like, yeah, not, not worth my time. I'm not going to go because they value more kind of towards the outdoor championship and get specifically more trained and get better in March. So they could have a bigger outdoor season. Cause realistically, like, if you're a professional runner, you want to stop running September and September is a really long way to go from February all the mm-hmm. way to September. So yeah. I, yeah. It's not worth it. And plus I, like hopefully in the future I, I'm trying to get a permit this year to maybe go to Europe, maybe after worlds or before worlds. So that way I could just, yeah, get in some more European races and race with other people.
0: Okay. That answered my, my next question was going to be like, yeah, you're, it seems to be like you're lucky that the world championships this upcoming (laughs) summer are here in the United States. And one, I mean, I'm looking at the track and field calendar for this year. There's just so many meets happening here in the United States that you really don't have to leave. If you're a pro, unless like, it's something big, like a, like a diamond league or anything like that. But you answered sort of what I was wondering was like, is this going to be like another big thing that you're going to have to try and overcome next summer for the next world championships or anything, you know, beyond that, because, you know, Paris 24 Olympics are going to be here before we even know. it.
1: Yeah. I think for me, like definitely with my whole situation of DACA, how it played out and the amount of uh, news and media attention it got, um, it was really big. And we definitely have some contacts now where we can reach in and talk to some supervisors who are in charge of the USCIS building. So hopefully in the future, if I do want to travel, it's going to be a lot easier to go in and out of the country. And yeah, I definitely want to go to Europe to race. I mean, it's just so different from racing Americans. Like, like, I don't know how to say, but like, yeah, at Murrow's it was so easy to move against some people, you know? And when I was at the Olympics for my prelim and final, like it was just so hard to get around people because everyone was trying to defend the position. And like, every time I move up to the front, like three seconds later, I'll get passed by five guys because they're just so more aggressive. And I mean, you could run fast in America, but I feel like in America, it's just, mostly just time traveling and not knowing how to race and yeah i would definitely want to go to europe because i think like foreigners just have a like they're just so more aggressive to race with you know like you mm-hmm. know everybody gets like oh paul why is paul shalimo doing this why is he looking back at what he can but realistically like paul shalimo which is probably another regular runner in the world you know maybe just because he does that in the united states he looks mean but <laughs> yeah i remember i was getting bullied in that 5k for the prelim and just getting pushed and getting like my elbows rubbed and yeah it was really aggressive and that's why i want to go to europe because i want that aggressiveness of how how people race and sometimes yeah you can 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 get that in america because yeah at Murros it was so easy to move up against people to kind of pass him and like oh yeah loose grahovel yeah let him pass but yeah the olympics they're like who the hell is this guatemalan guy in the front
0: (laughs) yeah all right so we've got a couple listener questions before we wrap up here we'll we'll get through them really fast someone gianni rocks 88 wants to know do you think you'll participate in the 2023 pan-american games where's that oh yeah definitely
1: i don't know where that is but definitely i mean like that's like the biggest like american games you could have and Mm -hmm. It's cool because only South and Central and North America get to do it. So no nobody in Europe or Asia or Australia get to come. And that's like, like I know this year it's like the Commonwealth Games for a couple of countries, but Pan-American Games is only for the Americas. So that's awesome if I get to be able to race there and just represent Guatemala again. Juan
0: for SK asks, sub 13 in the 5K or going on up to the 10k which do you prefer i sub 13
1: yeah Yeah, if i go sub 13 that would be awesome i don't want to run a 10k anytime soon i mean i think i still need to work on like on my speed of like 1500 meter 3k and then yeah to make the 5k feel easier but yeah no 10k until like i'm until like i'm 30 or something or i can't can be fast on the track anymore.
0: <laughs> well, I don't, th- I don't think you're going to have to wait that long at some <laughs> point. You're going to move up sooner than you think. <laughs> yeah.
1: Cause me and Kushner talked about it, but he's like, nah, that's like, that's for like, no one runs 10 K. Like, <laughs> nah, you don't want to do that. Trust me. Just stick with 5k 1500. It's like, all right, yeah, let's do that.
0: <laughs> Jacob Butera asks, who do you think has better hair? You or Jordy Beamish?
1: Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Cause I remember a couple of questions popped up like that. Um, yeah, it just depends. I mean, like, his is, like, his is cool, like, when, he like, he's running and, like, he doesn't put it, like, in a bun and just, like, flows in, in the indoor track. But I think mine's is cool, too, because, like, <laughs> if I put it half up, half down, my hair gets, like, really curly, and I have, like, all these ringlets, like, underneath my hair. And, yeah, I think it's just different ways. I mean, do you like straight hair better or do you like curly hair better? And I think everyone likes curly hair better. But <laughs> his, he has nice hair, too. But I'm going to go with myself on this one just because – yeah, it's me, and yeah, it's Jordy. I don't want Jordy to have all this attention. It's my podcast, not his podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're not on
1: Coffee Club yet. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> actually, here's, here's a quick one, I guess. Everyone, a lot of people have been shocked to see just like that last kick of his when he unleashed it last summer, and then this time around. And it's sort of like if you paid close enough attention to the NAU teams over the years, it was like, yeah, he was always really good. He just was hurt a bunch, and now he's finally found... Like a good string of training. So, does anything about this Jordy that we're seeing now surprise you?
1: No, not at all. Like, yeah, like I think unfortunately, Jordy was always kind of hurt enough I and mean, hurt, hurt, hurt in college where he didn't, didn't really get the shine that he probably wanted to. I mean, I remember just being like in these dome races and like the last like 100 or 80 meters, he just out kicking me and like a lot of a lot of our conference mates, he would always do that and kind of wait till the last minute and just, like, blast the last 15 meters. But, yeah, I definitely always knew he had a kick. And, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Like, yeah, he's, I was teammates with him for three years at NU. And, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. He's really talented. And if he could get going on a healthy stretch, he could be one of the world's best. But, yeah, I know, I know how to beat him, though. I didn't beat him on Murrow's, but I race up against him. I think I know how to, how to make a move on him now. Do you want to share it, or are you
0: gonna keep that one close to 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 your chest for now?
1: Oh yeah, I'll share it. Yeah, just I think I, I needed a. Well, I remember I was like, no one wanted to go with the rabbit. We we're supposed to be four or four with the rabbit, and we we're. I think I was four ten, which is kind of slow. We ended up closing really hard, but yeah, I think if I had played it differently, like maybe maybe I would have gone with the rabbit and then just make harder surges or harder moves. But yeah, like, I know like the last like hundred meters or the last fifty, he's gonna get me, but. Uh, he has a, a small little heart, you know so if you could just kind of wind it down every lap little by little eventually that gap that he always like sleeps in is gonna get bigger and bigger where it's gonna be a little bit too late for him to you know catch us or catch catch the pack but yeah I mean I think one year I went out I went we did a mile for a big Sky conference where I ran four nine and I went from 600 out and then yeah I got him but <laughs> Such so, just the fans. Yeah. I'm just talking crap on them because it's Jordy.
0: <laughs> so you can't let it it's honestly, it comes down to, you can't let that last lap, let him run 25 each time. Like it, you have yeah. to kind of wind yeah, it up I mean, and squeeze like, it out of him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, like realistically, like he's probably a better like tactician, you know? So like if, you're, if it's going to be a slow race and you better like make that last K or last 800 really hard. Otherwise he's going to like catch you, you know? Cause I don't think, I don't think no one can beat him in that last, like, 100. Like, I think his kick is too good for anybody else. Like, I think, yeah, he's just, like, a whole another level. But who knows? Maybe one day I'll develop that kick like him, and it'll be a different story.
0: <laughs> Mark RM520 asks, under what circumstances would you get a short haircut? What would it take?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. It would be really hard. I mean, I, I like long hair because you could do so much with it. Like, you could put it in a ponytail, bun, or half up half down or you could braid it or put crone rose through it but it's just so diverse like you could just do so much you know but yeah like I mean hopefully my hairline isn't that receding so I want to <laughs> keep it <laughs> until my hairline recedes and it looks ugly and I'll probably cut it but nah, I don't think anything in the world is gonna cause me to cut it unless I'm I don't know <laughs> unless a life or death situation where I have to cut my hair to save a person but <laughs>
0: So there's yeah. no, there's no way you would ever put your hair on the line for a head-to-head race against Jordy loser has to get a haircut. The other person can decide how much they, they have to cut their hair.
1: Okay. What type of race?
0: And yeah, what, what, what type of race do you think would be a fair matchup head-to-head? I, I think
1: either 3k. Yeah. 3k would be, well, I don't know. Cause I think I could get them in the 1500. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I think I get them in the 1500.
0: I think 1500 for sure. We'll 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 have to clip this part of the podcast, tease it on social media, and then we'll we'll see. I, yeah, I, those guys, they're very receptive. They love starting. Shit oh yeah, between so guys. I heard <laughs> I heard
1: this uh, 1500 meter race sometime later, maybe in March or whatever. But yeah, like if loser whoever loses between each other, like gets to cut, like the the winner gets to shave their head. How about that?
0: You <laughs> you would go. To, shaved head i thought you would i, I was gonna give you the out and just be like all right jordy gets to decide you get to cut you know two inches of your hair or something like that but you you're willing to go shaved head
1: yeah winner gets to shave the other person's head wow yeah. all right maybe That'll we set this up go all out and you know because i think for both of us that's a really hard thing to do because we don't want to lose our hair because like, it, it takes a while to grow our hair so I think that'll be fair,
0: yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll float it out there. We'll we'll, we'll see if Jordy takes the bait. Uh, and l- let's see what other one we've got here. I think I think that was it for the listener questions. Final questions I asked every every guest: uh, What's the funniest drug testing story that you've got? Um, surprisingly enough, the first time I ever got
1: drug tested was at MRS.
0: Oh wow, nice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like in college, in college, yeah, i have never been drug tested and. Even after the Olympics, I've never been drug tested. So, yeah, like when I first went in there, like they kind of explained the procedure, and then just I think it was pretty typical, like nothing funny or special. But yeah, I mean, I guess I spilled a little bit of pee on the guy's (laughs) hands by accident. (laughs) That's kind of funny, but just a rookie (laughs) mistake, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, "Oh my bad!" Like (laughs) he's like, "It's all good. It's all good." But I'm sure he's dealt with worse. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, but surprisingly enough, like um. Yeah, that was the first time i ever been drug tested. I guess, like, when they see a Guatemalan, they're like, oh, wait, a, a person's from Guatemala. We don't need to drug test them. Like, <laughs> no one ever comes out from Guatemala, you know? So <laughs> that's why we're athletics. Like, ah, oh, yeah, we're good. They're fine. It's only one of them.
0: <laughs> All right. Then we've got, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, yes, in this situation, no DACA restrictions right now. You could travel anywhere in the world with anybody from history. They don't have to be a runner. Who would it be and where would the run take place?
1: Okay, for location-wise, I mean, it's hard to say because I've only been in America. <laughs>
0: but but you, scroll, imagine... you scroll through Instagram, you see like, oh, Bowerman's up in, you know, the Swiss Alps and they're, you know, these nice yeah. photos and all that stuff.
1: So I think I would pick Guatemala because I was doing like some research and then like just looking at the geography of, the, of, the, of Guatemala. And it's really surprising enough, like the whole country – it's like a, like an altitude. So it's like kind of like Colorado where the whole entire country's at altitude. Right. And then you get the coast, but the coach is, the coast is made of like volcanic sands. And so the, the sand, the beaches on the sand is black. So that's kind of cool. And yeah. And there's like active volcanoes in Guatemala, like all the time, but this is like, I forgot what the lake is called, but there's this lake in Guatemala. It's like Lake Tahoe, but in Guatemala and just like it's a perimeter. I think it's like over 40 miles around the lake and wow. like all these little kind of tiny little villages are surrounded in the lake. So I think I'll pick there run around the lake and it's just, it's like a lake surrounded by like volcanoes all around the background drop and just tiny little villages up there. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pick that spot and then I'll run
0: anybody in the ever, anybody ever. They don't even have to be a runner.
1: Uh, I'll pick Kobe Bryant. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's 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 a good one. I like that answer. Yeah,
1: I think just uh definitely want to hear like kind of his mentality of like of like what it takes to be the best. And mm-hmm. you know, like obviously everyone hears the stories of like yeah, Kobe brown only gets three hours of sleep at night. He practices like twenty hours a day to make his shot better. But yeah, just hearing like what he has. Actually, Shaq. No, I like Shaq way better. <laughs> so I'll pick Shaq. <laughs> He's just a funny guy. Yeah, I'll pick Shaq. I... Forget about like the mentality stuff. I think I'll pick Shaq. Shaq's like- Just more laughs. Just... Yeah. Yeah, more laughs. laughs. This is so funny. Yeah. A bit, imagine running with like a, a 7'4 guy on the yeah. easy run, you know? That would be, yeah, it would be so much better.
0: <laughs> You're going to have to look up and see if anyone's ever broken four minutes for the mile on Guatemalan soil. And if you get it, get back there at some point, this is what you got to do. You got to find a track, go for it, make it happen, and bite- the community to come out and watch you. And I feel like that'd be beautiful to watch. Oh yeah. Awesome. But at the same time,
1: it will be at altitude again. So. Yeah, I know that's what I'm saying. <laughs> get it done in Flagstaff. Gives
0: you a little bit more yeah. confidence. Do it in Guatemala.
1: Yeah. That would be special. Like if I ever get a, hopefully come go back to my home country and yeah, be able to run for the people there. That would be, it would be awesome. Like, yeah, cause not too many runners come from Guatemala. Interesting enough. Like, uh, Guatemala is really big on the racewalk and in 2012 they got the first medal in, in the racewalk 20 kilometers mm. and they got a silver medal so wow. yeah there's a big racewalk culture out there but there isn't that much of a big running culture mm-hmm. out there
0: final question has nothing to do with running it's you get 25 shots from half court on a full-size basketball court if you make one of those 25 shots you win 25 million dollars if you don't make any of the shots, you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots? Nah, <laughs> I'm Smart not an answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was rescue. i making a half court shot. Like I've done it a lot like in high school, but that's really hard to do. But plus like, yeah, I don't think money is a big deal. It's not, not something that really interests me that much. So yeah, I will say notes in the money and just do it for fun. But no, I want to do it for fun because I don't want to go to jail. But <laughs> 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 no, nah, no way. There's no way I'm risking 25 years of my life to, oh, over money.
0: <laughs> Smart answer. All yeah, right, I would
1: so- I, I rather rob a bank or something like something cool <laughs> that way, or like a heist, have like a, a heist and get in trouble because you if you probably like heist or rob a bank, you're probably end up in jail for 25 years. So I rather yeah rob a bank and make like a cool heist movie all about it, and then make a documentary about Luis Carvalho breaking. <laughs> robbing the I don't know some bank of America I don't know
0: (laughs) so this weekend lilac grand prix
1: 1500 yeah 1500 so I'm stepping down and hopefully I could beat some of the their milers at their own game and yeah compete and have fun with it Last no race of the season and yeah just have fun and yeah no expectations no pressure you know I I don't know surprisingly enough I I thought it was a miler coming into college like the first couple of years but right now i feel like i'm more like a 3k 5k guy but yeah let's beat some of the smilers in their own game so
0: let's do it <laughs> yeah because i'm looking at your record here you you don't have a 15 indoor pr it's just you've run a bunch of miles indoors but outdoor 1500
1: 335 is your pr yeah i ran that in um one of the sound running meets yep uh a couple of weeks before the olympics yeah yeah
0: Awesome. Well, Luis, we wish you the best of luck uh, in training in that race, and hopefully we get to catch you during the outdoor season.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait to see you guys. too. So, Thank you.
0: The Sidious Mag Podcast is a production of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. It is produced and edited by Mike Zerzolo. Did you enjoy this episode enough to dish out a couple bucks? Support Sidious Mag by pledging any dollar amount over on Patreon.com slash Sidious Mag to join our loyal legion of backers who keep this show going strong. If you're on your phone right now, you can also open up the Venmo app and hit us with a one-time donation to at SidiousMag. We've also got merch over on SidiousMag.com. Any way you can show your support goes a long way. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. Legs are feeling good. See you next time.